Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ranjit Dishpande. Today, I'll be speaking with Ruth Kleinfeld, Professor of Nursing. She is an Assistant Dean for Clinical Scholarship at Vanderbilt. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you. Today, uh, we're going to talk about an article that was recently published in the Critical Care Journal. Uh, The article was titled, Choosing Wisely in Critical Care, Results of a National Survey from the Critical Care Society's Collaborative. Ruth was the first author. So before we start, Ruth, do you have any financial disclosures? No, I have none to disclose. So what made you come up with this really nice survey? Well, thanks for having me. And certainly I have to acknowledge the co-authors, Dr. Kurt Sessler, who is a past president of CHEST, Clarine Weinsack, who was past president of the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, and Mark Moss, who was president of the American Thoracic Society, along with myself. We were, I was president of uh, SCCM the year that we uh, published this, as well as uh, focused on this initiative. And it really was a collaborative effort from the Critical Care Society's Collaborative, of which SCCM has participated along with ATS, CHEST, and AACN for the past several years. Uh, Definitely, I think it's about 10 years or more that we've had the Critical Care Society's Collaborative. And over the years, uh, the organizations have worked on a number of initiatives, and this was one in uh, the focus of the Choosing Wisely project came from uh, the Critical Care Society's collaborative uh, involvement in the Choosing Wisely campaign. So the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation launched the national Choosing Wisely campaign in 2012, and they really charged professional organizations to identify a list uh, from five to 10 measures that are done too frequently or unnecessary in practice. So In total, there were over 80 specialty societies that signed on to the Choosing Wisely campaign, and the Critical Care Society's Collaborative actually had a task force of 10 uh, members uh, representing the four organizations, and they worked to review the literature and actually came up with a collective list of over 50 potential uh, critical care measures that we could look at in clinical practice and through a process of uh, rating and uh, based on priority and applicability to critical care, they came up with the list of five. The five things that should be questioned in critical care practice is really, you know, looking at unnecessary use of uh, lab tests at regular intervals. You know, we were so used to doing daily labs on patients regardless of their stability And so that's the first recommendation. The second is not to transfuse red blood cells in hemodynamically stable patients. So really looking at a hemoglobin concentration of seven, you know, should these patients be transfused or not. Um, Not to use parenteral nutrition in critically ill patients who are adequately nourished. Uh, Don't sedate, deeply sedate mechanical ventilated patients without a specific indication. And then lastly, don't continue life support with patients at high risk of death and also having involvement of families to look at comfort cares and options. So those were the five that the Critical Care Society's Collaborative developed 
as part of the Choosing Wisely campaign. So this survey was really an attempt of the organizations to identify, since these were put into practice, you know, how are clinicians implementing them? Are clinicians aware of them? What are they doing in their units uh, to really target these best practices? And so that was the purpose for conducting the survey. Excellent. I see that you got an overwhelming response of 2,520 folks. What surprises me is the percent of nurses was really high. 61% of your respondents were nurses, you know, physicians and, you know, advanced practice providers, which usually have nurses and PAs in them, their, their numbers were low, 10.5%. Physician numbers were 25.9%. Pharmacists, were also very low. Can you explain this discrepancy in percentages? Sure. Well, as you said, we had uh, 2,500, uh, actually 2,520 respondents. And the rationale for us putting forth the survey to all four organizations was that we wanted to assess awareness of critical care providers of the Choosing Wisely recommendations uh, for critical care. And so the large percent of nurses, we had uh, 1,500 nurses respond, we had 640-some physicians 200 and some advanced practice providers and 50 some pharmacists. And that actually reflects, you know, the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, their membership is 115,000 members in comparison to, for instance, Society of Critical Care Medicine has 16,000. So, you know, we really identified that perhaps, and, and it's most likely related to the membership numbers that we had more nurses respond than physicians. But I think overall, we were actually surprised that we had that many clinicians total, you know, complete a survey. It's difficult to get people's time uh, to complete surveys. So we were actually glad with that response rate. Oh, great. I think this is a great paper addressing core problems in medicine, not just critical care right now. You mentioned the five items that the committees came up with. You know, uh, in our ICU, I'll, I'll openly say this is a national forum, but in our ICUs, we do do daily labs. And it's very hard to get physicians or providers to move away from that. When I do rounds and I communicate with other team members, you know, could it, it could be surgeons, it could be medicine folks, any consultant, they want daily labs. Now, value of daily labs in a patient who's stably, critically ill I would say slightly controversial. You know, there are there are situations where you definitely need daily labs. You might even need labs every four to six hours. The big question is, how do you bring about a change in the mindset of providers who are accustomed for generations getting labs, you know, every day, midnight or early morning labs? How do you change that behavior? Yeah, you know, certainly uh, if a patient is critically ill, yes, by all means, the frequency of labs are, are justified, uh, you know, when we're trying to manage someone who's critically ill. But I think for years, uh, as critical care practitioners, we oftentimes did unnecessary lab testing. I worked in the surgical ICU for over 15 years as a staff nurse and then as a nurse practitioner since then, and we would do arterial blood gases just with a ventilator change, right? So, I mean, I think over time, we have become more aware of the cost, the we're phlebotomizing patients with unnecessary lab draws. And so I think being mindful on a daily basis of do we need a entire lab panel on patients? So, you know, we had over 300 comments from the individuals who 
had answered the survey. And it was interesting because they actually shared strategies that they have implemented. And I think one of the ones that can be implemented across the board is to look at our standardized order sets. You know, there are some order sets that have daily labs on post-surgical patients that maybe you don't need to have daily labs for seven days. You know, let's do it until they're stable and then it can be evaluated. So changing standing order sets is sort of like low-hanging fruit. The other is electronic medical record order sets. You know, looking at just revising some of those, putting in alerts, electronic medical record alerts. If, you know, a clinician has ordered a test that's pending because someone else has ordered it, but the result is not yet available. Um, we've had examples of individuals writing in that even on daily rounds, they'll assess, okay, this patient is stable today. And based on the lab results for the last two days, what lab tests are absolutely necessary for tomorrow. So, you know, having it really a culture change that it's just not standard across the board. Everyone gets daily labs unnecessarily. So gearing it to individualized patient care. That's very well said. You know, you mentioned something about when changes and routine ABGs for when changes. You know, a lot of ICUs are moving towards capnography now, waveform capnography, you know, and I would recommend anyone who's listening to utilize waveform capnography along with your pulse ox and minimize all these blood gases. That's really important. That cuts costs and saves the patient from, you know, iatrogenic anemia, as we call it. And then, you know, we have in our unit moved away from, we, we do have good transfusion thresholds or good goals for transfusion. Seven is a goal that we follow. And as an anesthesiologist, we've been following that in the operating rooms for, I think, approximately a decade or more. So I think we can always use numbers from different organizations into critical care medicine. That's where the um, American Board of Internal Medicine plays a very good role. They're talking about parental nutrition. I have seen, again, as soon as a patient gets intubated, you get an NJ tube, which is a nasojejunal tube, you know, goes by a lot of different names, Darboffs and, you know, different colors. So these tubes are placed and patients are started on feeds. What's your take on starting trickle feeds versus, you know, rapidly ramping up feeds in these patients? Well, you know, it certainly is individualized care for patients, and it depends on their nutritional status upon admission. It depends on their diagnosis. But I think overall, we saw that about 80% of the respondents identified that they were not using parental nutrition in nourished critically ill patients within the first several days of an ICU stay. And I think integrating our, our dietitian colleagues, you know, many ICUs with the multi-professional team, we rely heavily on our team-based consultants, uh, you know, to really guide some of our practices. The same thing with uh, our pharmacists, you know, having input into medication administration and such. It was interesting out of the five recommendations, the one that was identified to be uh, adhered to the lowest was the last recommendation in terms of you know, looking at realistic goals of care for patients and not to continue life support for patients at high risk of death. And, you know, I think out of all of them, this still remains a challenge to us. If we look at the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, the last recommendation is, you know, looked at uh, providing appropriate care to patients. Uh, and that one of the sub recommendations is that a care conference, a discussion to, for goals of care with the family should be implemented within three days of ICU hospitalization. And I firmly believe that if all ICUs did that, that we wouldn't have some of the 
downstream impacts of, you know, nurses experiencing moral distress of having to give full care to patients who will not likely survive and to be able to have discussions with families and make care realistic. So we started out by talking about parental nutrition and I sort of, you know, broadened it a bit, but, you know, certainly when we looked at the survey results, for majority of units, they had identified there was awareness about decreasing unnecessary testing, about the transfusion, about the nutrition. And now with the ABCDEF bundle, there's so much more awareness about appropriate sedation, ambulation of patients, uh, you know, appropriate pain management. In fact, I'll circumvent around. There's actually a subgroup now that's looking at an additional set of either five or more recommendations from critical care. So that was one of the things that the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation had charged to the professional organizations is that once you develop a list, you should be monitoring to see if it's still relevant to practice. And if there's other recommendations, those should be added to your list. So, you know, if we look at all the work that has come out from the PAD guidelines and the ABCDEF bundle work, certainly some of those recommendations may come forward in the next iteration. For instance, you know, early mobility is something that we're really trying to advocate for. So although we have this initial set of five, I think I also want to highlight that there are others that, you know, are being considered by the Critical Care Society's collaborative. In fact, there's a task force out of the Society of Critical Care Medicine that's currently looking at that. No, I think excellent. The, the thing that you really, the, this article really showcased was end-of-life care. I think that uh, is extremely important. I personally do think that end-of-life care discussion should not be initiated right at when the patient is getting into the ICU, but it should be initiated way before. It should be, you know, there has to be a realistic expectation by the patient, his, his or her family members, about where is this disease process moving or which direction are we going. And uh, not, not to point fingers, but, you know, it needs to be a more, there needs to be a more holistic approach where you have family care physicians involved because they are the ones who have the best relationship with that patient. They're the ones who've seen these patients for a long time. And it's, I think it's, it's more of a, like you said, a moral burden for a provider who comes new, like who's a new face to the family to build a relationship and now say something that the patient or the family was never expecting. Because nowadays we feel that, you know, you go to a physician, you go to the ICU, the job of a doctor or a provider is to get this patient out of the ICU, get him, you know, him or her back on the golf course playing golf. And these, these expectations are, I shouldn't say all the time, but sometimes unrealistic. And I believe that there should be more of involvement from providers who have seen these patients in their best of health you know, not best of health, but before coming to the unit. So let's say, again, I see it from two perspectives as an anesthesiologist. I see it from, from the OR perspective when we are operating on patients who we know have a very, very high mortality. No goals of care have been addressed there. And as an, as an anesthesiologist, five minutes is what you usually get, maybe 10 minutes with the patient. And it's, it's, it's a huge burden for the CRNA, for the resident, for the anesthesiologist to take this patient through and then drop him in the unit. I think this needs to be addressed more globally, maybe involving 
palliative care early and palliative care doesn't really mean you know end of life it means comfort you know let's do the right thing for you so i think this was very very good you touched on some other guidelines the pad guidelines the abcde ventilation guidelines the mobility stuff what do you see coming into critical care from these guidelines you did mention that there are some other groups that are working on these yeah well you know and, and even as a some of the data that came forth from this survey, um, you know, clinicians had shared that they were raising awareness within the units. I think oftentimes, and this is reflected in the literature, we think we're doing best practices, but when we do audits, we find that really our rates are not where we thought they were. So some of the strategies, and this even applies to, you know, early mobility, but certainly as it relates to the choosing wisely recommendations is having the ability and using our electronic medical record to, to get audit reports, to get data, to look at our performance and to share those with members of the team. Because once the clinicians, and we've done this you know, collectively um, in our ICUs to, to look at where are we with our quality indicators and sharing that with every provider, not just the director of the unit and you know, the ordering providers, but the bedside clinical staff to showcase, you know, we need to be better at these metrics and everyone plays a part in that. So, you know, if, if we're trying to target mobility, what are our rates of early mobilization? Um, if we're trying to target decrease in lab tests, what are our rates? And that actually was one of the projects that I've been involved in here at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. They actually launched a Choosing Wisely task force uh, when the recommendations first came out. And this was actually a collaboration between their hospitalists and their internal medicine physicians and critical care. And they launched a campaign to get the results on a daily basis of how many lab tests were being ordered. And we're providing that information to providers. And so we actually had a group, you know, here at Vanderbilt, we have over a thousand advanced practice providers who are 24-7 in our ICU. And so they play a big role in patient care management. So we launched an APRN-led Choosing Wisely initiative where we had six APRN teams that targeted reducing daily labs and reducing unnecessary chest x-rays. They were able to target for a year their progress. They published, they presented on this. And based on that, we now have a national collaborative. Uh, we receive funding from the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. So we have a monthly collaborative call that uh, different teams call into and identify how they're targeting a Choosing Wisely initiative and what their progress is. So, you know, I share that because I think individual ICUs can look at what is their current data with best practices related to choosing wisely as well as other recommendations and how can they improve that through either their quality committees or you know their improvement committees within the unit and that came out clear um, in the survey that people identified that once they started reporting data they had dashboards uh, they kept staff updated on performance goals that that's when they saw improvements really in what they were trying to achieve so coming back to coming back to your article you did mention what else can be done how do you change behavior the big question i've always had there are these giants in medicine who are excellent at what they do you cannot have a service without those providers but they're very resistant to change and how do you get them on board to the latest evidence when you know that this is working when you know that this is not harming the patient but actually benefiting the whole big group or the entity improving quality? How do you make that change? Yeah, good question. And it really is based on habit 
and culture. We don't like to change. You know, we've done things this way, et cetera. But if you look at the model that SCCM has had uh, in their past couple collaboratives, they've had national collaboratives for, you know, most recently the ABCDEF bundle and then patient and family-centered care where we brought together intensive care unit teams. And one of the key strategies in changing culture is you have to have unit-based champions. You have to have administrative support from the medical ICU director, from the nursing director, that this is something we are going to implement and support for clinicians to have time to meet, to plan. Um, you know, it's, it's not all about patient, direct patient care and billable services. We, we need to have time dedicated to focusing on improving our quality. Um, I'll give you an example. When I was at Rush University, we participated in the SCCM collaborative for the ABCDEF bundle. And it was a multi-professional team and our pharmacist, Nick Panels, was the lead. And he brought together representatives from, excuse me, all of our adult ICUs that worked on looking at the data for performance metrics on sedation protocols, on early mobilization, um, you know, all the elements of the ABCDEF bundle. And it was through having that data and bringing people together monthly, you know, that could work on little by little. Um, there's actually a Tanzanian proverb. It says, little by little, little becomes a lot. And, you know, I like that model because it's true. You know, we think, oh, my gosh, how are we going to change all these practices in our ICU? Well, you start with one, you know, well, maybe one that's the easiest to implement. And you put into place measures to help staff accomplish that. So for early mobilization, we all don't have the ability to have dedicated physical therapists or mobility teams, but yet we can put in place the resources for staff to work together, to have gate belts, to have walkers at the bedside, to be tracking. And on a daily basis, it's, you know, what, what time is this patient getting up? Not, is this patient getting up? You know, I have to put a shout out to um, colleagues, uh, Sam Brown and others who are at, in, in Utah uh, in terms of their healthcare system there where they have really put into place, Bill Benetti and others have put into place a really nice model of care where early mobilization for every patient is done every day, um, regardless of whether they're ventilated and on, you know, vasopressors, even sitting them up is the goal for the day. So it, it should not be uh, that only several patients get it. It should be every patient. And I have visited their facility there, and they actually have a very unique system with their advanced practice providers supporting their staff nurses. But every patient gets a shower every night. They have a shower chair where they take them into a shower stall. And if you think about it, that relaxes the patient. You know, we, we, that's a routine that we do ourselves. And if a patient wakes up in the middle of the night and they are um, this is at Intermountain Health in Salt Lake City, Utah. But if a patient wakes up in the middle of the night, they ambulate them around the unit. The patient is so exhausted by the time they get back that they fall asleep. So, you know, it's looking at how can we change culture to better improve patient-centered care. We're waking patients up at 4 a.m. to get daily labs so they're ready for 7 a.m. rounds. What, what sense does that make? <laughs> you know, we need to, that, that's actually one of the recommendations now of the new PADIS guidelines is looking at sleep promotion in the ICU. So, you know, I think changing culture, yes, it's difficult, but it's not a task that is, um, that cannot be achieved. I think we have to have focused efforts, support from administration down, and support for clinicians to be able to gather data and make improvement changes. 
in the discussion section of article, you've written down a few things, or three points, basically, categories of improvement. And I think you covered them, but I just want, I just, I would like to go over these points again for our listeners. Sure. Well, you know, we identified that, uh, and actually through the survey, that there's a number of examples uh, in the literature, actually, uh, that would help individuals going forward in terms of looking at making some of the improvements and uh, adopting the Choosing Wisely recommendations. Uh, many articles have been published, uh, examples of clinical change projects. We've had abstracts at SCCM and the other critical care organizations um, that give clinicians uh, really, I think, starting points. So, you know, raising awareness, number one, uh, bringing attention to baseline data, number two, putting together a team to start to address implementation of, of some of the Choosing Wisely initiatives or other quality improvement measures and collecting data, getting data from the electronic medical record that can be given back to providers to raise their awareness of how well they're doing. You know, if we don't get the data, we don't know how we're doing and we don't know how you know, are we improving based on what we're doing? So, you know, those are some of the key points um, that came out from the survey as well. You know, continuing education, sharing strategies. I know the Society of Hospital Medicine is great about doing this in their journal. They have a special column on choosing wisely. And there's every month, there's examples of how teams have implemented uh, choosing wisely initiatives. So, uh, the Critical Care Society is continuing to work on, in this space, and as I mentioned, there's a, another task force that's looking at additional measures for critical care. So, you know, it's something that um, is really uh, a goal for all ICUs to improve uh, care for patients, to reduce unnecessary testing. You've heard the term high-value care. You know, that really is, and that was Dr. Jerry Zimmerman's presidential theme was looking at, you know, high value care um, and how can we do that in critical care. So, you know, I think as we go forward, we'll be interested to hear the results from the Choosing Wisely task force that's looking at additional metrics uh, for Choosing Wisely critical care. Sounds good. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, this concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Uh, for the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Ranjit Dishpande, your host. Thank you again. Dr. Ranjit Despande. Dr. Ranjit Despande is an intensivist and an anesthesiologist at the Yale New Haven Hospital, YNHH. His interests include organ transplantation and point-of-care ultrasound. He currently is the director for transplant anesthesiology at YNHH. He is actively involved in resident education. Dr. Despande grew up in India and graduated from the BJ Medical College in Pune, India. He came to the United States to pursue a residency in anesthesiology at the University of Miami Jackson Hospital, after which he joined the Johns Hopkins University as a fellow in critical care medicine. His interests outside of medicine include spending time with his family, playing tennis, and squash. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. 
statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.